1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Um, I'm going to introduce our panelists just very, very briefly and then ask them each to speak in order. And so I'm going to ask to speak first and then... Uh, really Peter and Niall could kind of comment on that. And then we might just do a, a round of question here at the panel. And then if whatever time we have, we'd love to open it up to the audience. And so if we do have time for questions and we open up the audience, if you just please raise your hand and wait for the microphone and then just I- identify yourself and ask your question be great. So Zolt Nemeth is the – is George Wa- – I don't know. Are you George Washington, Patrick Henry – uh or Thomas Jefferson which one are you right cuz uh. cuz you're the, <laughs> so the so he's one of the founding members of the Fidesz party and has been a member of the Hungarian parliament since the first free and democratic elections in 1990 so you're you're a founding father that's legit um he is currently chairman of the parliamentary committee on foreign affairs and the head of the Hungarian delegation of the parliamentary assembly to the Council of Europe since 2014 um, Peter Peter Rowe is a fellow at the Hudson Institute, which is one of our great partner institutions that we're very proud of and does some incredibly excellent work and he covers European affairs um, at hudson and The guy down at the end is Niall Gardner and Niall is the director of the heritage foundation 's Margaret Thatcher fellow and oversees all of our research on uh, on on western europe and and is one of the few guys that 's been here longer than I have so it 's a this is such a, a fascinating issue. Um, you know, it's kind of like, what's going to happen with Brexit? And then that's the first question at the cocktail party. And then the second question at the cocktail party is, what is going to happen in the upcoming European elections and how is that going to affect the future of Europe? So to have a really, a really excellent panel to talk about what is happening in European politics today and what the European Parliament elections as a moment in time is going to tell us about the future of uh, Europe is just really an incredible opportunity. So I'm very excited for this panel, and I'm going to take any more of time. So sir, I'm going to turn it over to you for introductory remarks, and then we'll have some commentary from our other panelists, and then we will open up the conversation. So thank you, and over to you.
2: Thank you, James. I would like to... Uh, uh have a look at the uh, Europe, uh, European-American uh, relations, the transatlantic bond, uh, and the relationship between uh, the United States and uh, Central Europe in the context of the coming uh, European elections. Uh, one big, big question is whether Europe is going to go on with uh, experimenting, uh, as Europe is a big experiment, at the moment after the European elections, experimenting with uh, defense policy, primarily considering uh, which way is best to protect Europe, uh, either with less American component or with uh, deeper integration within the transatlantic uh, community. If I want to exaggerate this dilemma in black and white terms, the tendency is... Um, alone or together uh, as a main question our decision might be indifferent for america since if europe decides to go on her own it means less costs for the u.s budget which is fine uh for in in, in some aspects for america however it is not indifferent for countries living on the eastern brink of europe and forming the eastern flank of nato The difference between the two European approaches is characteristically distinct Uh, in some uh, West European states like France and, say, the Polish approach. Poland being a neighboring state with Russia at the Kaliningrad enclave with the massive Russian military base placed there is understandably feel the threat more uh, imminent. The perceived threat factor in different states can fundamentally differ and this difference can be measured in the tons of steel they store in active military capacities. In Poland's perception, the alone or together dilemma is a dead or alive question referring to themselves. So Europe's approach is not homogeneous in the transatlantic question. It varies from state to state, and we wish uh, to near the European standpoint uh, to the together alternative, so the thesis and antithesis would give out a harmonized synthesis. This is the dilemma for uh, the European defense industry also. Experimenting with independence, either with uh, either the CSDP, the EU's Common Defense Policy uh, Bureau, is going to focus on building an independent European defense industry or building the European component of the transatlantic defense industry. This latter concept uh, could be boosted by opening the Common European Defense Industry Projects for all NATO allies, including the U.S., The independent European means an integrated defense industry on the continental level. The transatlantic means this continental industry is integrated into the transatlantic defense uh, capability development. Either uh, going deeper in the transatlantic integration or the other way, that is one of the questions for the future European Commission created after the 26th of May, the date of the European parliamentary elections. Our economic relations should also be manoeuvred so they would promote the uh, defence industry in the most expedient way. And considering the possibilities of this aspect, I think we should exclude ideological considerations and go pragmatic. Two practical angles that we should consider are One, what makes the whole of the West stronger? And secondly, what makes the European states safer? Hungary nowadays is working working on building a decisive military force in Central Europe. By decisive, we mean to contribute to the Central European military capability uh, and capacity with the real added value, so our allies would say that they were less safe. Uh, without Hungary. To realize that it is useful to bring as much know-how from the uh, Americans as possible, the more conferences, seminaries, discussions concerning technology and strategy we have, the more knowledge we can exchange with each other. Some words about Russia, because that's definitely uh, after the European elections. Relationship with Russia is going to uh, uh, be uh, an important question. Concerning Russia, on the one hand, we must be able to defend ourselves and the West as long as Russia is a threat to us. On the other hand, in the long run, we must create relations with Russia that turns Russia from a threat into an integrated rule-based component of uh, the world economy and global political life. A reliable state may sound dream today. I know uh, taming a bear bear is quite a challenge, but those who live in the wilderness have some experience with that. To do that, uh, we must secure that Ukraine's relation uh, to the West would become uh, as independent from Russia as possible. Their integration into any organization should be irrespective of Russia in any aspects. They must not depend on Russia in any sense, including conditions, we lay down for them or we give, give up just because we are afraid of Russia. Because if we do not lay down conditions, we integrate the Russian influence into our own decision-making. If you let uh, someone in your club, you want him to adjust to your rules, otherwise you will suddenly realize he plays alone the rules of his old club. Respecting human and minority rights, I don't need to say, must be a rule in the new club. A few words about energy security after the elections. The emergence of the American gas gas on the European market is uh, the best news in our decade. We are ready to make more efforts to connect to it. And actually, we Hungarians have already done practically everything we could we brought our gas pipes to each uh, of our neighboring uh, borders and turned them fit for reverse flow as well. As you may uh, know, Hungary supplies continuously uh, in the past years uh, gas uh, to the Ukraine as well. Our isolation should be ended by such a connection from either direction, otherwise we stay exposed To uh, solely to Russian input through Ukraine, which corridor is declared to be shut down by Russia relatively soon. It is worth to give a thought to what is next if we do connect to American LNG gas, either from Croatia or from Italy and Slovenia, uh, which is neighboring us. What is going to happen when we will have an alternative Russian or American gas? Shall we target to eliminate eliminate Russian gas completely from our energy uh, imports? Or uh, we should just end our uh, exposed position, vulnerable situation, which we presently stuck in? This is a relevant question in Hungary because of the prices, first of all. We are struggling hard with the burden of a large national debt, as you know, our government inherited from uh, our socialist predecessors. And asking to pay a higher price for our energy independence is fair enough if we do not lose our hard-acquired economic independence in meanwhile. For us, uh, as for America, Hungary is also the first. This is what drives us uh, and our policy, and it has driven us to victory through three elections – So uh, in energy uh, uh, security field, uh, diversify, diversify, diversify. Uh, We are still uh, far from being in a diversified uh, situation, unfortunately. An important aspect uh, is uh, uh, Christianity and value conservative dimensions of our policies. Uh, What will happen in this regard in Europe after the elections? Hungary uh, has, uh, as you know, a very important, crucial, common strategic perspective with uh, uh, the approach of the present president of the United States. We were uh, the first uh, to build a fence to protect our southern border from illegal migrants. Uh, Our family model uh, is... uh, integral part of our vision for the future. Uh, This is not part of the social inclusion policy only. This is part of the global inclusion policy. This is the part of our uh, sustainable society model, which is actually a Christian vision uh, for Europe. We have introduced a complex program in order to help families, children. Our vision is not an uncontrolled, illegal migrant boom, but a baby boom. so uh, that Hungary would remain one of the safest uh, countries in Europe. This statement is supported not only by the statistics, uh, but also uh, by the Jew- Jewish community, co- community which we feel responsible for, as you may know. Um, the Jewry in Hungary is the third biggest in Europe, right after uh, uh, Britain and uh, France. The Jews in uh, Budapest live and walk in Kippah in the streets uh, freely today, and the Jewish community uh, flourishes. There's a kind of uh, Jewish renaissance in Budapest uh, that they call sometimes a little uh, Tel Aviv among themselves. The new form of anti-Semitism, which is being imported by the mainly Muslim mass migration to Europe, has no place in Hungary. The Hungarian Far-right Party Jobbik is just falling apart, uniting with the post-communist socialists and melting away. The results of this uh, May European Parliament elections are relevant for the European Jewish community as well, who have been the first victims of uncontrolled migration since Charlie Hebdo terrorist attack in Paris in uh, twen- 2015. Uh, we want to help uh, finally, a sustainable society uh, everywhere in the globe. We bring aid uh, to the failed states. We help in Syria. We help in Iraq, too. Uh, not only our troops are ready to be there, but also our construction brigads, uh, brigades. We have built up a village, a hospital. Uh, our motto uh, is give help where needed and do not bring trouble in europe otherwise we both drown in the sea of misery sustainable world includes the protection of christianity worldwide our special focus is on them we established as you may have heard a state secretariat with this particular aim over 200 million christians are under hostile government or persecution in over 100 states in the world they are the most endangered religious minority. We should not forget that. I see a possibility of closer cooperation with the United States in this special field of development policy. As you may have heard in December, we have signed uh, a a development MOU uh, with the uh, U.S. aid. Uh, We live in the fastest developing region in Europe, with Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, the so-called Visegrad Group, Uh, the gdp growth is double here than the european average Uh, u.s business has acknowledged this region by investing in the region by large uh, quantity what we welcome we are also part of a broader region what is not eastern but central europe as we like to call ourselves Um, i don't want to explain and rally too much around this but i'm sure uh, you know what we mean uh, on Eastern Europe and on Central Europe. Uh, the three C's, or Trimarium Initiative, initiated by Poland uh, and uh, introduced by, upon the visit of President Trump, uh, summer uh, 2017, is uh, a vitally important in I- initiative which is aiming at the infrastructural, transport, energy, and digital development of the region, Uh, especially North-South between the German- and Russian-speaking part of Europe. This region uh, is the only region in Europe which is building up clear military uh, capacities. This is also essential in the EU in prospect of the Brexit. Uh, As we all know, after uh, uh, Brexit, uh, the most important military uh, power leaves Europe, And I'm sure that Neil will uh, speak about this. Uh, But uh, if uh, America uh, is uh, trying to reorient its uh, European policy after Brexit, the role of Visegrad, the role of the Central European countries, will have, I believe, a totally different dimension. After the European elections, we will see more clearly a successful Central European region And that might be good news for the coming decade, not only in Europe, but for the renewal of uh, the West, the transatlantic community, as it was the main uh, uh, idea of President Trump uh, visiting Central Europe, coming to Warsaw, that the renewal of the West can be based on those very important values, uh, what we could uh, name as... uh, uh, Christianity, belief in God, uh, in uh, national identity, in uh, family-oriented policy, and obviously in freedom. And finally, I would like to thank you, uh, James, for the possibility to meet you again in D.C. Uh, We had a fantastic discussion when you were in Hungary. And I am very glad that uh, this occasion, uh, the Hungarian Parliament Foreign Affairs Committee uh, has got a very interesting program. Czenghor zalan Zolt is the vice president of the committee of the Parliament Foreign Relations Committee. I'm chairing, and I, I would like to welcome Ambassador Sabo, the uh, ambassador of, the, of Hungary here among us. Thank you very much for your attention.
1: Well, that thank you. That is a smorgasbord of, of issues for Teed Up for Peter and Niall to comment on. That's like those are more issues than, than the British Parliament have voted on in the last hour and a half. That's, that's uh... So, Peter, I'm going to kick it over to you, and you have a lot to choose from. Thanks, so, Jim. over you go.
0: And thanks uh, to Heritage for having me here today. It's great to be here. Uh, thank you all for uh, your interest in the subject. I do think the 2019 parliamentary elections are much more interesting than the last time these elections were run in 2014. Back then, Jean-Claude Juncker, as the leader of the European People's Party list, ran or walked, sleepwalked, potentially, a very leisurely campaign for a few months across the continent. And uh, now we have Manfred Weber, his successor, of course, at the head of the EPP, kicking off the campaign in Cyprus in January, a few months earlier than uh, Juncker did in 2014. It just shows how much the world has changed in the past five years, the election of President Trump. Uh, Brexit and so forth. And uh, since I have uh, Hungarians on one side of me and the British Isles on the other, let me make a few yeah, observations.
1: Technically correct, Nile is an American citizen. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh,
0: with the specialty, I should say, then, of uh, of the British Isles on one side of me. Let me make a few uh observations, maybe three about the characteristics of Europe um before then, uh just making one or two observations in reaction to um uh, to those remarks. Uh and the first the first characteristic that I would just draw your attention to is it's almost a banality, but Europe's incredible diversity. It really is a rich mosaic of various peoples and political streams and groupings. Um, the Hungarians are, as was just mentioned, part of the so-called Visegrad Bloc, um, of four states often folded into that grouping, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia. And yet the leaders of those four all belong to different, uh, political families in Brussels. The Czech, uh, part of the Aldi libertarian group, the Slovaks, the Social Democrat, Fides, of course, part of the People's uh, Party, and, uh, peace, the uh, Law and Justice Party in Poland joined uh, David Cameron's initiated Europe Conservatives Movement in the European Parliament. So there's a great deal of diversity, oftentimes to speak of France and Germany as the Franco-German locomotive in European affairs. But here too, we have Emmanuel Macron, part of the all-day bloc, uh, prospectively once a march enters the parliament. And on the German side, Angela Merkel and her successor, designated successor, Annegret kramp who maybe we should just affectionately refer to as AKK, of the People's Party. Uh, A month or two ago, we had a signing in Aachen between the French and the Germans, a symbol of unity in that they wanted to deepen the Franco-German project. And then a few weeks later, there was an op-ed published by President Macron and all 28 uh, countries of the European Union followed immediately thereafter with a response from AKK. And you just saw that national interests still matter most within Europe. Macron uh, emphasized the importance of economic sharing. It's where the Germans are strong, while French France would still have sort of strategic leadership, so German money in the service of French aims. And the response from Berlin was just the opposite. No to debt mutualization, but perhaps we could share that Security Council seat in New York, which, of course, the French immediately uh, shot down. So I think the first point is that the largest, most cohesive unit of political action in Europe is probably the nation-state. We can speak of Europe as a broad continent, as a civilizational unit, but I think for coherent action, it's probably still... Uh, the nation. So that's the first point I wanted to make. The second is that uh, the distribution of power within Europe through European uh, widening and deepening to the east and to the south has grown so much that there really isn't one actor that can dominate Europe. Uh, the Treaty of Lisbon in 2007, which serves as a de facto constitution of sorts, introduced a double majority of voting system in which any initiative that wishes to make its way through the Council of Ministers requires both 55% of European Union nation-states to support it, and those 55% must constitute 65% of the EU population. Well, France and Germany, uh, despite being advantaged by this system, don't even constitute a blocking minority. So you need large coalitions for anything to pass uh, within the European Union, and I think that partially explains why, perhaps this is putting it too drastically, but Europe has been impotent on a whole host of issues. It's very difficult to marshal a large enough group uh, to drive an agenda. Uh, and the last point I would make is that as I look to May, I really think that Europe is a contest between the center right and the more populist right. The Social Democrats have been on their heels uh, for years now in Europe. If we think of Social Democratic premiers, there's one in Malta, uh, Portugal, Pedro Sanchez in Spain just called snap elections, which he may win. But nonetheless, they gave up their stronghold of Andalusia recently, the Romanian prime minister, Slovakia, Sweden, and that's essentially it. Uh, so uh, while there might be a model for the Social Democrats back to electoral gain, maybe they'll follow uh, Jeremy Corbyn's approach in Great Britain or the American Democrats and veer sharply to the left. It's a normative uh, – sorry, uh, an analytical, not a normative statement I'm making. Um, I still think the battle basically up until May is between uh, different groupings on the right. And here I think uh, uh, the European People's Party, uh, just like the Social Democrats, p- perhaps less drastically so – is likely to lose some support for the simple reason that uh, Europe is undergoing a change moment. And if we look at the big institutions in Brussels, the three big men at the top, uh, Antonio Tajani running the European Parliament, Donald Tusk running the Council, and Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commissioner, are all EPP uh, party grandees. So it's very difficult, I think, as an incumbent in a period of change uh, to be able to uh, perform uh, the way that they wish they would. So I think if you talk to the Europeans, they will acknowledge that uh, the established parties are likely to lose a bit and some of the – shall we call them, for lack of a better phrase, nationalist populist um, right is likely to gain uh, a little bit. What does that mean or what are the implications for uh, for American interests? And here I'll pick up uh, on the chairman's comments. First, I think um, that uh, the U.S. should uh, find ways to accommodate uh, the nation state within European affairs. I think it should revisit, as the Trump administration has, the automatic American support for European integration uh, over the decades. Uh, secondly, I think uh, uh, that uh, Europe requires American leadership uh, for the impotence I just described. Secretary Pompeo just had a uh, I think a, a good visit through Eastern Europe, including to Hungary, where he spoke about American competition. I think that is important for the Americans to be present, uh, to assign missions and roles, to rally our allies, to build uh, unified policy prescriptions. And that, uh, I think, is necessary if Europe is to actually take actions on things. And then lastly, I think it's important for us and our support for nationalism to um, – Uh, uh, be wary or at least be careful that nationalism doesn't devolve into provincialism. There still is an order in Europe that America created, and whether it be telecommunications or infrastructure projects or in the case of uh, energy diversification, which we heard, I think, uh, excellent remarks that I would endorse, all the way through to, of course, uh, the military flank of Europe. It's important that uh, we take our allied responsibilities seriously, beginning with ourselves, and then also encourage our allies uh, to do the same. just very quickly, uh, so I can I can turn it to Niall. I would say uh, on defense spending, I would wholeheartedly uh, endorse and agree uh, with the comments that were made. I think Pesco and EDF to talk about two European projects in the defense industrial sphere have been ones that the United States has been nonplussed by until about six months ago. I think now. Uh we heard uh, a year ago in February, of course, uh, at uh, uh in Brussels from Kay Bailey Hutchinson that she worried this might be a backdoor to protectionism. I think that trend in the last six months has picked up a little bit, so it's something the administration is monitoring. And I think something uh that our European partners should uh be aware of. I'm all for the Russians as a rules-based actor. We just have to get them there. Um and uh that might take some time and in the meanwhile I think we have to be uh very careful and, uh, and, and, um, and ensure that our deterrence capabilities are, are where they are. Energy diversification, defending Europe, giving the nation state the ability to take its own immigration decisions. I have no objections uh, to any of those points. And with that rather rushed presentation, I'll kick it back Thank to Jim. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Peter. It was great. So it was really interesting to hear you describe the future of the European elections as between the right and the right. <laughs> so which, uh, so with that's a great segue because we move from the right to the right. So Niall, over to you.
3: Well, thanks uh, very much, um, uh, everybody, for joining us uh, this afternoon. And uh, thank you to my colleagues as well for their uh, tremendous uh, remarks. And I'm just going to um, add, add to those uh, those comments and uh, talk a little bit about, um, about Brexit, but also the, the big picture in terms of U.S.-European relations at the moment, U.S. interests in terms of the transatlantic uh, alliance. And um, there's no doubt about it, I think, that uh, – uh, following the, the EU elections in May, Europe, you know, faces a, a very clear-cut choice between either going down the path that Emmanuel Macron has outlined of a, a sort of federal European super-state or going down a different route, which is based upon the traditional uh, nation-state and national interests, which, uh, which I, you know, position espoused, I think, strongly by for example, the Polish government, the, uh, the Hungarian government, many of the, the governments of Central and Eastern Europe are not in favour of a, a sort of federal European superstate. And I think Europe has to really decide which course they they want to take. Uh, and and I think the path that Emmanuel Macron has outlined, uh, in my view, is a very dangerous uh, path, and it runs counter, certainly to to US interests. It's been strongly opposed for decades by uh, by Great Britain is now being opposed by uh rising powers in, in Europe especially by by Poland uh and it remains to be seen you know who's going to you know win out in in Europe on this on this particular front but i i would though wager that i think that uh, monsieur macron really is on the losing side of history here uh, and i think in the uh the european parliamentary elections you are going to see a significant rise in support for for euroskeptic uh, parties uh these parties um are are uh widely varied in terms of their policies on different issues but they are broadly united i think in a belief uh that the direction that europe has taken in recent years towards uh increasing euro federalism is not the the course to to go down uh and i think that uh in many ways the parliamentary elections will be a game changer for for europe they will be very very closely watched in terms of the results on both sides of the of of the atlantic uh, and i think that without a doubt you know we are seeing the winds of change uh you know blowing across across europe uh and uh, you know europe is fundamentally changing public opinion is fundamentally changing with regard to the future of europe uh and i think that uh, you know european leaders have to listen to where public opinion is is moving uh with regard to uh the the big picture outlook for the future of the european uh, union uh and, and i think you will see uh, euro skepticism uh, growing in strength significantly uh, following the may uh, may elections um with regard to uh, to brexit which is a which is a massive uh, game changer for for europe um of course it remains to be seen exactly what's going to happen in the next in the next few months but or indeed the next few days uh, and the next, next few hours, hours. <sighs> um but uh, I, I think that um, the new the new Brexit date clearly is April the 12th. Now, uh, that is going to be the, the crunch date. It's it's unlikely that Theresa May is going to get her EU withdrawal agreement through uh, the House of Commons. Uh, I don't think she has a majority for that for that deal, and hence the April 12th date comes in. And Theresa May has then a very clear choice of either uh, seeking a, a no deal uh, Brexit or uh, seeking a lengthy extension to to Brexit. And it's certainly my view that any lengthy extension to Brexit would be highly dangerous, uh, and it could potentially derail Brexit altogether. And also, uh, the European Commission and, and the, the European Council will demand some very, very harsh terms as well if Britain wants an extension. In other words, I think the EU will be seeking uh, billions of pounds uh, uh, more in terms of of britain 's payment to the European Union in order to in order to leave. We could see uh, Britain really uh, being a sort of vassal state of the European Union for a period of 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 many years under a proposed uh, extension uh, and an extension would go against everything I think that Theresa May has promised in the past, and the idea of British candidates you know standing in the may European parliamentary elections, I think, would be, you know, completely ludicrous. Really, after the British people voted uh, emphatically to leave the European Union uh, back in 2016, um, and so, uh, you know, the, the, the best course of action, certainly for, for the British Prime Minister, is offer a No Deal. It's certainly within her power to do so, despite what will be a series of indicative votes in in the House of Commons over the next uh, couple of days or so. But it's, it's within the purview of the Prime Minister; it's her prerogative to take Britain out under a no-deal. Uh, and I think there will be a, a tremendous battle within the uh, the, the, the British Conservative uh, cabinet uh for for the heart of heart and soul of Brexit. Um and it's also a moment when we need real uh you know resolve and robust leadership from the British Prime Minister. She hasn't offered that. Um she's also, I think, been faced with what can only be described as um an incredibly unhelpful approach from the, from the European Union as a whole. And in many ways, the EU has approached the Brexit negotiations as, as a form of punishment beating, as a warning to other European countries of the consequences of daring to leave the EU. Uh, and so I think the, the negotiations have been conducted in an extremely mean-spirited, uh, manner. And you have a, a prime minister who has been an extraordinarily weak Need in the face of that. Um, and so we're left with the mess that we're now now facing right uh, right now. Um, in terms of of US interests um, on the future of Europe, and and both of my my colleagues here have have touched upon that uh, that that very important issue. I would say that the United States has a clear interest in a strong Europe, but a strong Europe of nation states. And what you have seen over the, the past um, two and a half years of the, the Trump administration uh, has been a rather different approach, I think, towards the European project. And so uh, in contrast to the Obama administration, the Trump administration has very much uh, focused its its approach on Europe in terms of dealing with national capitals. It has been critical of, of uh, many aspects of, of EU leadership, for example, over the Iran uh, nuclear deal. Uh, and and i think the uh the present us administration has, has taken a far more realistic approach to europe which is that europe is indeed a collection of nation states national sovereignty self determination really matters which is why the administration has wholeheartedly backed uh brexit uh and and i think that um the the present us approach to europe is is a far uh, more constructive approach than i think the approach taken by by president obama who was fixated upon U.S. support for, uh, for a federal Europe, which I think is completely the wrong direction. So I would expect to see in the months following the European elections a very clear message coming from Washington that, um, it is not ideal for, uh, for Europe to go down the path of creating a, a European Union army, which will significantly undercut, uh, the NATO alliance. It's in America's interest to have a very strong Europe that is prepared to stand up to the Russian bear. And the best vehicle for that, of course, is the NATO alliance. A European Union army isn't going to do anything. In fact, an EU army is exactly what Vladimir Putin wants. A vehicle for weakening NATO and for dividing Europe. And so the, all, all of these calls from, you know, Macron and Merkel and other European leaders from EU army is exactly what the Russians want. And the United States has strongly resisted, as President Trump already has. And he called the idea hugely insulting, and he's absolutely right on this on this issue. And so I expect that you're going to see uh, the U.S. focusing uh, strongly on opposition to the EU army, focusing strongly on building up the NATO alliance to confront the Russian threat. There will also be, I think, significant pressure coming from the United States on, uh, on European leaders to end their support for the Iran nuclear deal, The JCPOA agreement is a disastrous agreement uh, that significantly strengthens Iran's long-term abilities, uh, and it's a deal that runs completely against the security of Europe and and the Western world. And so I think there'll be a very strong focus upon that, and also a renewed focus ahead of the NATO summit in London upon um, defense spending among European partners. And I think that's that's a message, certainly, that uh, the president, I think, is going to be hammering home. Significantly, in a, in advance of the uh, of the NATO summit in, in London in December, and so all of these areas, I think, will be will be uh, key areas of of focus. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that Europe needs to decide where it wants to go in terms of its own future. And the reality is that the European Union is in decline. Uh, and the idea of creating some sort of European superstate, as my former boss, Margaret Thatcher, once remarked, is perhaps the greatest folly of the modern era. Uh, and so uh, I do think the European parliamentary elections will be helpful in terms of crystallizing the, the divisions that exist within within Europe and the fact that Europe is not some, uh, you know, some grand monolith where everyone uh, sits around the table in agreement. Europe is a collection of nation states that is very, very deeply divided on a whole host of issues. And the idea that you can put all European countries in, in, into some sort of common straitjacket dominated by, by Paris and Berlin ordering diktats to all of the, the remaining 27 EU members, that this whole approach is dangerous, uh, and counterproductive. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, this is, this is a moment when we need to see uh, national capitals coming to the fore when we need to see a challenge to this uh, awful idea of of creating a European uh, super state and when we see national capitals you know reasserting uh, their their rightful uh, role here and I do think brexit will be a, be a massive a massive game changer provided that Britain can actually get outside of the the European Union. Um but the Brexit is you know is going to fundamentally I think transform the future of Europe, which is why so many leaders in Europe are trying to are trying to stop it at the moment.
1: Thank you. So there are a lot lot there to unpack and I'm a simple guy. Um but next this next part is very complicated because I'm asked three questions, um much like Monty Python. But the th- i'm gonna the third- i'm want to tell you what the third question is now, so you guys can start to think about it because of the first two results so the the third question i'm going to ask is for each of you is because I think one of the interesting things for me in this panel is there seems to be among the three of you a lot of different ideas, but a a general consensus on how you think the European Parliament elections are going to turn out so my so the third question which I'm going to come back to for each of you is the same, which is knowing. Uh, anticipating the results that you think we're going to see, what is the number one piece of advice you would give to the U.S. on what the U.S. should do in response to the election results? But the first two questions are for you. So, um, so they they're lucky, they get to think about theirs, but um, uh, and I'm going to ask them both and then you can do them in turn. So the first one is, is, um, you know, we had a very important visit by Secretary of State Pompeo to the region. Yeah. And, um, we have so many things here. I think that just kind of got overwhelmed by so many other things. And we really didn't have a chance to kind of assess it and take it in. So I would be re- – I think we would really benefit from kind of your assessment of the visit, um, how you think it what what it accomplished, what there is to build on, and the following to that. So that's the first question. The second question is I want to give you an opportunity to, to um, respond to anything that, that Peter or Niall said that you think um, is worthwhile. So why don't you do those two, and then we'll go back to the third thing. And if we have time, we'll bring in the rest of our uh, – of, of the folks here
2: and how about the third
1: the third question is the same for you which all is right, what's okay. the number one thing we should do uh, okay, well, we're right. gonna do we're gonna do the first two and then we're gonna let the other two go and then you can give the real answer
2: sure sure all right okay uh, so uh, Pompey's visit uh, to Hungary took place in February and uh, I would like to uh, make you remember that the last visit, of an American uh, foreign minister took place in 2011 when we had Hillary Clinton uh, coming to Hungary. And since then, uh, we have had a negative spiral in the po- on the political level in the Hungarian-American relations. Uh, it probably did not negatively influence the, uh, the defense cooperation Uh, defense went on its own, more Mm -hmm. or less, and uh, especially uh, the Russian invasion uh, in Georgia and later on in the Ukraine, Crimea, uh, Donbass, has generated a kind of united transatlantic uh, response. However, this uh, uh, was reinforced uh, by internal debates concerning the role of NATO in the American strategy, and probably uh, President Trump also clarified his position concerning NATO, uh, uh, which we have been a bit uh, doubtful uh, in the beginning. But now uh, I think we can be relaxed that it seems that NATO uh, has found its identity and that there is a quite unilateral uh, attitude towards it. there is a transatlantic accord in that regard and i think uh, the debates with uh, the united states on uh, a nato level uh, helped to make it uh, generally accepted that the 2% uh, decision in wales mm-hmm. uh, must be kept by everybody mm-hmm. i don't see yet the german commitment uh, but probably after uh, the elections uh, it might uh, uh uh be clarified also uh so uh but most of the european allies have committed themselves uh to it uh we have made that commitment actually in the first orban cabinet between 98 and 2002 but between uh 2002 and 2010 we had a socialist period and from 1.1 uh we have uh slide it down to uh, 0.6 by 2010. And from 0.6, now we are climbing back. And now we are at 1.2, and hopefully we will reach every year uh, uh, by 2024. We are planning to reach uh, the 2%. uh, But that is in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now uh, we have got, I think, uh, you asked about... uh, conclusions of the visit, a very serious negotiation uh, concerning uh, uh, nukes and uh, military uh, investments as well uh, in uh, uh, the United States market. Uh, So negotiations have started uh, into that direction uh, as well. That has been an important outcome of the visit uh, of the foreign minister. And also we have been able to uh, come to an agreement concerning the DCA, the Defense Cooperation Agreement. So the text is decided. I hear now, I've been here for a couple of days that uh, what's happening there. You know, we are a, we have a parliament and we have a European elections, And uh, now uh, next week the Hungarian parliament will suspend its work uh, because of the European parliamentary elections. But we have agreed. And if Hungarians say that we have agreed, then we have agreed. Uh, and there is no any reason uh, to question or doubt that kind of agreement concerning the the DCA, the DCA is going to be approved before the summer recess, I'm sure. Uh, So it is in the pipeline, and uh, that's uh, an important uh, development of the uh, visit as well. But by and large, I would say that uh, uh, we have had a very strong defense cooperation. Mm -hmm. The business is going on pretty well. Uh, you, I'm sure you know that the uh, most important uh, uh, trade partner outside Europe and uh, investor in uh, Hungary outside Europe uh, is uh, the United States. So this kind of dimension of our economic cooperation is very deep and, uh, and uh, there has not been really any uh, problem uh, with our business cooperation. But on the uh, political level, we had mm-hmm. – a uh, very difficult time. Uh, and uh, by the time uh, the uh, Trump administration came in, that we have to, had to witness uh, very uh, uh, negative results in the Hungarian public opinion. So what was the characteristic of the era uh, which we are talking about the Obama administration and Victoria Nuland's uh, uh, Euro-Asian policy? It was, uh, I would say, educative, uh, it was uh, paternalistic, uh, it, it, it was not based on mutual respect. And I think a, in an alliance, uh, these are central categories. And this kind of uh, respect now is reinforced, uh, despite of partner, this type of partnership is demonstrated, and we have got a pretty intensive and very fruitful Uh, bilateral relationship. I would like to welcome Reka Samerkenye, ambassador, former ambassador. Uh, uh, She was active in that period. If you need more details, you can ask her. Uh, uh, That what we are talking about and what uh, kind of, what type of attitude uh, is not helpful. And I think it is useful to remember that, because that might be uh, educative for the state administration today. Uh, how to uh, manage uh, relationship inside and outside Mm -hmm. uh, the alliance uh, with uh, important partners. So I think uh, the visit of Pompeo in this respect uh, was uh, very successful, and I think we have got a a time for uh, a very substantial uh, development in our uh, relationship. Now, concerning uh, uh, the reaction uh
1: to what what uh, so I, did so second d- question, the so, so or peter yeah yes, the, yeah the, yeah the oh sure sure sure. Uh,
2: sure very shortly i would like to respond to them uh i, I think uh, uh, we have a uh, uh, very similar understanding obviously uh, uh neil is a, a, a british and uh, uh, mr rao is uh, some to some extent a german I
1: I, I I would I would
2: I would, I would uh, 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 question the the term nationalists uh, uh, and uh, uh, we need to uh, see what kind of uh, of uh, tendencies we are exactly talking about uh, uh, in Europe. But I agree with him that uh, uh, it is pretty interesting that the fundamental divide is inside the EP. It is not really anymore uh, uh, a competition between other political formations, mm-hmm. but the most important uh, uh, ideological debate is inside the European People's Party. And inside the European People's Party, I would like to inform you that last week we had a very decisive uh, decision concerning my party. Mm-hmm. I am a founding father of Fides, so I am especially responsible for my party. Uh, And there have been 13 parties in the EPP who wanted to uh, expel my party from the EPP. Uh, And last Wednesday at the political assembly meeting, we had the debate on that subject. Mm -hmm. And the 13 parties were in the end uh, Mm -hmm. defeated uh, uh, very uh, shortly. Uh, we had a very long discussion uh, over three hours there have been 30 interventions uh, concerning this initiative to expel Fides. Out of 30 interventions 15 interventions were in favor of expelling Fides, and 15 interventions were very uh, much against it. So it shows uh, that there is a liberal progressive wing in the EPP uh, which has got, uh, let's Stay with that, and there is uh, a value conservative Christian democratic line inside the EPP, and uh, the German parties, uh, parties because we have two uh, uh, CDU and CSU, uh, have been uh, balancing in this debate, and uh, finally uh, they have brought up the solution, the compromise solution, which we agreed with us. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, we have uh, decided that uh, the solution is that there will be a Weizmann Group which will investigate the uh, uh, Hungarian situation. And until that decision unilaterally and uh, voluntarily, Fidesz suspends its activity uh, inside uh, EPP – uh, basically until the European Parliament elections. Uh, this is the so-called Austrian model 20 years ago. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, uh, if you remember, uh, uh, we had the FLP, uh, an FPO coalition in Austria, yeah. and uh, that triggered a very similar type of debate inside EPP. And one of and the
0: wise men is the former chancellor. Right. And one of the wise
2: men is Mr. Schussel. That's what Viktor Orbán said. Yeah. In 20 years, he will invest <laughs> <laughs> the Swedish party, you know, if they are eligible to stay or not in the uh, EPP with their uh, liberal approach. But anyway, so uh, this was, uh, uh, I think, a very interesting discussion. So what I expect from the elections, I expect a more fragmented European <laughs> political scene Uh, I don't expect a breakthrough, uh, uh, as probably Neil suggested, that there will be a breakthrough in the uh, European Parliament. Uh, I think more fragmentation, uh, less support for the socialists, less less support for EPP, more support for the liberals, because yes, uh, Macron uh, now will uh, enter that. Uh, family and uh, uh, and left and right extremes will also have a uh, bit more support. Uh, but the big question is, into which direction the EPP will go, and that we will see. Uh, what parties will get stronger in EPP, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. what individuals in probably um, progressive parties or liberal parties? What kind of individuals mm-hmm. uh, will get uh, stronger in those? Uh, uh, formations and in the and then we will see uh, if epp is going to uh, orient uh, the ship of the european union uh, towards the federalist mm-hmm. and i agree with this kind of uh, 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 dichotomy or the more uh, i would say europe of nations concept because this seems to be uh, the decisive uh, question now uh, the more Federalist vision or Europe of nations uh, alternative.
1: So we only have about five minutes left, and I want to get to the third question. But I want to see if Peter or Niall want to make a quick response on on the nationalism issue. Um, yeah, I not I you know I, I
3: agree with uh, with the chairman's um, comments just now that. Uh, I think in the European parliamentary elections, you are going to see this, uh, this momentum building against, against a federal Europe. And so you have this disconnect between, uh, some of the key political, uh, leaders in Europe, Macron principally, and, and where, where I think public opinion is moving. And I think this, this divide, this clash is going to be, uh, extremely important in terms of shaping the, you know, the future of Europe. And I think this raises the point that, you have um, a huge disconnect between the European ruling elites, who are stuck in in an outdated sort of mindset, and and where where I think um, a lot of European publics are 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 moving. Uh, and and I think this this sort of clash, which you've seen as well over Brexit in Britain, this clash is going to be huge, you know, hugely important in defining the future of. Of Europe, so I think you raise a very uh, you know important point there.
1: So we so we yeah. just have about a minute each. So I want to get to a third question. We'll we'll start with right now and we'll work our way down. So, um, what is the number one piece of advice that you would give to the U.S. policy towards Europe after the European elections?
3: Yeah, I, the, the main advice I would give would be to to recognize that Europe or the European Union um, is you know is. Undergoing, you know, tremendous uh, internal uh, changes, and to recognise that there is this tremendous, uh, you know, battle between between the eurofederalists and those who who seek a um, you know a looser Europe with with a greater focus on on the nation state. And I think my advice to the present US administration is: don't make the mistake that previous US administrations made by giving their support. To this idea of ever closer union, to this idea of of a grand European project, and President Obama epitomised this this approach. It backfired spectacularly, of course, over Brexit when he intervened on that issue. And I think that U.S. policy has to move with the times and recognise that um, Europe is Europe is changing, and also to recognise the old, you know, Franco-German axis which dominated the European Union is weakening. Um, and it's starting to to break down, and it's no longer going to be calling uh, the shots all the time.
1: All right. Well, if you're gonna, that's great. But if you're going to give that advice to President Trump, you're going to need to necker it down at 240 characters. <laughs> Peter, Peter,
0: I'll I'll do you one better. I'll give one advice to our, to our Hungarian <laughs> guests, and then one also to the to the administration. Um, I think that the American view towards Europe really uh, goes through Brussels with sort of two different lenses. The first is uh, is the lens toward the European Union, and uh, for all of the positive externalities of Brexit, I think one major negative side effect is that the US is going to be missing its traditional translator. And the Brits have always explained to us institutions that even experts in Washington don't really fully have a grasp on. So I think there's an empty chair there and, uh, and whoever wishes to grab it and I think become for the Americans that key interlocutor to let us know what is happening and why in Brussels and how we should think about it. Um, it's, it's, it really is there for the taking. Um, presuming that, that Britain does in fact Brexit from, from the European Union. And the second lens, of course, is the military. So if I were to give one piece of advice to the American side, I would say, uh, uh, unlike other regions of the world where presidents have to reconceive how to approach, say, the Middle East or Latin America or Africa. In Europe, we have an existing multilateral structure that makes it easy for a president to navigate the continent. And so uh, we should make very clear after the European elections that the Europeans should do nothing that undermines NATO. NATO for us is the essential alliance. Uh, and a path towards a European army could potentially jeopardize that. The reason I say uh, something like that might be a useful message for the Americans and for the president to bring to the Europeans is that we've sleepwalked into a total disaster with Nord Stream 2. And part of that is it seems like the Germans didn't quite recognize the severity and the acuity of uh, building out this infrastructure. And now we're really in a cul-de-sac where we are threatening sanctions. Uh, it's a bipartisan American opposition to the project. And on the German side – uh, they say the project is so advanced, what can we do at this point? So I, I don't want to see that where five years from now we wake up, the European army is duplicating or siphoning resources off of NATO and we come to a huge clash that could potentially threaten the lines altogether.
1: Hey, Peter, I don't know if you can get that into a tweet, but probably a Facebook post. Would work. <laughs> so Mr. Chairman, you have the very last word.
2: Thank you, James. Uh, I would have two two advice, Okay. if you allow me. Um, so one advice would be, that uh, we have to take much more seriously the transatlantic bond in the field of economics as well. Uh, And uh, that kind of economic warhead uh, we are now uh, having in front of us is, is extremely dangerous. Imagine if there is a kind of agreement between China and the United States And there is not an agreement between uh, Europe and America. Uh, We are not far from this scenario. So the unity of the transatlantic community uh, in economic terms uh, should be uh, treated uh, carefully and uh, with uh, much uh, more uh, strategic vision. Uh, The other uh, advice would be that uh, I think now it is time... Uh, to recognize uh, Central Europe, uh, the region, uh, the Visegrad countries as a major potential partner for uh, the United States to deal with matters concerning the future of Europe. These are the two advice I would like to make. Thank you.
1: So my only disagreement is I like to call it Western Europe. My definition of Western Europe starts at the border of Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia, <laughs> but that's me. Um, uh, first of all, thank you all so much for coming and participating with us today and uh, this really fascinating discussion. And please join with me in thanking our panelists for their remarks. Thanks. That was great.
0: Thank, thank you very much. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.